One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Oh, my God. What? Whoa, that was loud. I just have to oh. turn down my thing. Hold on. Hello, and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. Please join our Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. It's really the only way we can keep going, and we really appreciate your support so far. We, of course, provide you with extra bonus content. For this week, we will be providing you with a short discussion I have with Gabe about something that happened on Twitter, a little fight I had with the mainstream liberal feminist mafia. And it's really because I don't want to deal with it again that I'm only releasing it on Patreon. We also will be releasing extra content with Angela Nagel. And this week, look out for our episode with Matt Karp. Also, next week, we will be interviewing Khalid Kamau. No big deal. He's only a Black Lives Matter activist and Democratic Socialist and Bernie Sanders backer who won his city council race in the state of Georgia. Follow me on Twitter at KT Helps. That's letter K, letter T, H-A-L-P-S. That's KT Helps. And you can follow Gabe at Gabe underscore Pacheco. Also, go to our Facebook page, The Katie Helper Show. And if you do tweet about us or the show, please use the hashtag KT Help Show. That's letter K, letter T, H A L P S H O W. Special shout out and thank you to Adam Proctor, host of the Dead Pundit Society podcast. We use a clip of his interview with Angela Nagel in the show, with his permission, of course. We will be doing our next live show on June 14th at the Brooklyn Commons. That's 388 Atlantic Avenue. As always, please rate and review us on iTunes. So happy to be here with my main man. Gabe Pacheco. Hey, it's great to be here today, Katie. I, I got out of uh, got out of bed for this today. I'm so honored. I I, I rose from the uh, like Lazarus. Exactly. Fueled on Nyquil. Fueled on Nyquil. Nyquil being the holy. That's that's sauce? my sacrament. Your sacrament. That's my souse. <laughs> this is how a, a secular Jew tries to know about Christianity. Is I call it a holy sauce. I like that holy sauce. That's right. right. I uh, uh, speaking of Christianity, did you? I don't know. You went to like camp, right? You went to commie camp. Yeah. As a little kid. Secular Jewish. Yeah. Uh, I never got to go to camp, but the Legionaries of Christ in middle school they tried to enroll me in their uh, in their uh, group, which is which is a very ultra. Right wing, uh, uh, Christian youth group. How did they branch meet of you? Catholicism? They uh, they came to my middle school and they said, "Hey man, do you want to come to uh, Six Flags? We're gonna do a sleepover and then we'll leave from our compound in the morning. You can come with all your friends. It'll be great." And I thought, "Oh man, this is awesome. We're gonna go to a clubhouse, no parents." And then I show up and uh, they they had like nothing but water and crackers for us. Uh, that night, and then we watched a documentary on a, on a priest who had the stigmata. Like the holes in his hands? Padre Pio, the holes in the hands. And they were like, look, isn't that great? Isn't it beautiful? And I was like, "What? You, like God gave this dude uh, foot and hand herpes. And, oh, uh, my God. I'm supposed to. Herpes. F- yeah, that's it. Yeah. Wow. Did, your parents weren't freaked out? I mean, you know. They were. I think they were happy to get uh, free babysitters. Oh my god! Whatever and whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? Yeah. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. That's amazing. Um, yeah, we uh, we have a great show for you today. We're talking to Angela Nagel, who is the author of Kill All Normies. Kill All Normies. Kill All, all Normies. We were able to check a, an advanced copy. Exclusive. Pretty, pretty, pretty good. Anything else you want to talk about? I see a lot of people who are outraged that Obama is um, being attacked 
for uh, for getting the four hundred thousand dollars, and they're like, "Can a man, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but can he cook? Can he? Why can't he get this money that other presidents have gotten in the past for doing the same thing?" And it's like, well, be, just because a precedent was set for a terrible, corrupt practice, doesn't mean that we should keep doing it. And he's already got a, a two hundred thousand dollar a year pension plus a sixty million dollar uh, book deal. So what, taking four hundred thousand dollars from Wall Street is just, hey man, it just, it's Un- bad optics. Exactly. Also, it's greedy. Unnecessary. It's, it's un- greedy, yeah. Yeah. Obama did some shady stuff with Wall Street. So it's especially bad optics, like you were saying. Yeah. Uh, my favorite was, again, I'm going to go back to Twitter, but it's, as I always say, it's, it's, it's a window into where the soul would be of the media, right? And it's like, of course, I'd rather they not take fat paychecks, but I'm tired of people with no money problems judging others. I'm like, you think that the Obamas are $400,000 away from poverty? Right. They do not have money problems. So people are playing the racist thing, right? Yes. And they're saying it's racist. And it's like, yeah, where were we when, when George Bush did this, when Gerald Ford did this, right? I mean, the point is we weren't following then because we weren't alive then. When George Bush did this type of stuff, we all called him out because we all hated him. And there was no illusion of liking him. That's the difference. Like. No matter what we think of Obama, and you and I have been very critical of him, he is better than Bush, and we don't expect him to be as bad as Bush. And again, it's the optics. I'm never surprised that they want to do things or do it. I'm always surprised that they do it, like, openly. You know what it is? It's like when Polly Walnuts in The Sopranos takes free bread rolls uh, and packs them in a bag to take from the restaurant. It's like, come on, man. Like, that $400,000 and free bread rolls that you're taking. You know, everything we've seen since he's retired is going on vacations with billionaires. Uh, Parasailing, skydiving, just having a a great time, which, you know, it's deserved. It's a hard job. Sure. Go have a vacation. I want a vacation. Oh, that's the other thing. We all just want it. That's why you care. You're just jealous. I mean, you just don't don't take money from Skeletor. (laughs) You furry, flea-bitten fool, I'll cover my throne with your hide. Like yes, if exactly. if if one of the things that most of the left leaning people, aggressive people in the country were critical of was Wall Street, uh, ties to Wall Street, then to cash in off them is just showing you who he's aligned with. The uh, remember uh, who the Rashad Geppettos Robinson. are exactly the Geppettos are. We know who the Geppettos are. Yeah, and I mean it's just ridiculous, and I can't stand the. I had an awkward thing where. I, there's a guy on Twitter who has a, a photo of a white guy as his avatar. Yeah. And he said something about, oh, you're just blaming the black guy. Of course, you got to blame the black guy about Obama and the criticism of his accepting money. And I assumed this white avatar, Avi, if you will, was him. Yeah. And I said something like, people like you um, make it are an embarrassment for people who actually call out real racism. And then he was like... You got, like, white people have more nerve than a toothache or something to tell black people what's racism. And I was like, I'm really sorry. I didn't know you were black. I thought you were white from your avatar. And I apologize. I would have phrased it differently. I never say you people to people of color. And he was like, no apology necessary. It was nice. Coming together. Oh, that's Beautiful great. coming together. See any good movies? Uh, yeah, well, I was uh, sick. I watched, uh, I had, a, a like, a Border Wars just movie binge. So I watched Cartel Land, and then I watched Sicario. And The Counselor. Oh, my God. The Counselor with um, Cameron Diaz. You bet, man. She's got those little uh, paw print tattoos. And she's got a gold a gold tooth. Yes. For how not good it was, it was incredibly disturbing. Do you know what I mean? Like, usually a movie has to be well done to really give you nightmares. Yeah. And that one, I'm not going to give it away, but it was really awful. I hated it the first time I saw it. And I've seen it uh, three or four times now. And every time I see it... I love it more. So what made you go from hating it to, hey, you know what? I'm going to give it another shot. 
Uh, I I think the actors and the director, and it looks beautiful. So it it's visually stunning. It's just very there's not no redeeming qualities right. to it, the, and 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 there's no catharsis. Uh, but as you keep watching it, I mean, every time I see it, I just see more nuances in the performances, and I fill in the blanks of morality. Uh, Yes, yes. It's Ridley Scott. I'd forgotten about that. Is he the one who's alive, or is he the one who... He's the one that's alive. Tony Scott, his, his brother, brother... took his own life. He did. I think uh, over time, people are going to appreciate Tony Scott more and more. That's always how it is. I love uh, a lot of the movies he made. Top Gun, The Last Boy Scout, and True Romance. I forgot he did True Romance. So great. Yeah. Screenplay by Quentin Tarantino, but directed by uh, Tony right? Scott. Right, that's the correct that's it. way. It's not the other way around. Yeah, such a great movie. One of my favorites. We're really excited to call our guest Angela Nagel, who actually you you will hear that she has a little bit of an Irish accent, but she's originally from the United States and moved to Ireland when she was eight. I just found this out. So this is like a Madonna thing. Where, like, when Madonna went to England, she started uh, taking on that... Yes and uh, no. Lockstock in uh, smoke, Two Smoking smoke Barrels. Yes, because she's American, as is Madonna, North American, Estados Unidense, USian. But she moved at the age of eight, not like 48, when Madonna did it. So it's kind of legit. Okay. As I was raised a Catholic, and I had questions like, you know, why did God create the world? And why is there so much sadness? And why is there war? And why do good things happen to bad people? And bad things happen to good people? My father could never answer those questions. Hello? Hello? Hi. Hi, Angela. Hi, how are you? Good, you? Thanks so much for joining us. Angela Nagel is the author of Kill All Normies, a book exploring the online culture wars, and also writes for The Baffler, Current Affairs, and Jacobin Magazine. And we're really excited to talk to you about your forthcoming book. I have a question for you as someone, I'm just interested in your biography, if that's okay. So you're, yeah. you're from the United States, and then you moved to Ireland when you were eight, is that correct? Yeah, I was born in Houston, Texas, and then uh, my parents are Irish, and they moved over there in the 70s. Uh, then we moved back to Ireland and I grew up in Tipperary and I've been in Dublin since I sort of uh, uh, went to college, you know. Nice. I went to the Burren, by the way. Oh, wow. Beautiful. I've actually never been. Oh, yeah. It's really beautiful. Yeah. Mm. Um, and I flew into Dublin, but I didn't go there. But I really want to go. Really do yeah. want to go there. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's definitely, it's a fun city. Um, but I think a lot of those things, like the Burren and Newgrange and stuff like that, a lot of Irish people never actually see them. Mm. You know, kind of uh, tourists uh, are, are much more likely to go and see them. But uh, it's kind of a pity because um, a lot of those kind of things are amazing. Newgrange is great. If you ever if you ever come back, you should definitely go and see it. Cool. Yeah, it's kind of like the Grand, am I, am I right when I say it's kind of like the Grand Canyon? Or do a lot of Americans go to the Grand Canyon, but I'm just an ignoramus Philistine? <laughs> Do you mean like it in the sense that uh, only tourists go there? Yeah, 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 yeah. Gabe, definitely. have you been there to the GC Grand Canyon? No, but my father just uh, retired and he went with uh, my aunt to the Grand Canyon. They did extensive training, you know, <laughs> like a lot of squats, uh, stairmasters, really? and then they did like a like a for a month ahead of time, and then did a a week long hike down and back. That's crazy. That's so crazy. yeah. Uh, old uh, retirees go to the Grand Canyon. You were Canyon. about to say old. Uh, <laughs> or it's like me with Broadway. I don't go to Broadway shows unless a friend is in from out of town. 
<laughs> Actually, I went to the Grand Canyon, come to think of it. There you go. And I went to the Burren, yeah. you see? Yeah, yeah. Because I'm not Irish. So, but my name is Catherine Rose, Katie Rose, which sounds pretty Irish, right? Mm, yeah. You, you never know that Jew through and through. Um, so this book is really exciting, and you've been doing a lot of podcasts. You, we're really excited that we could get you. And related to your being Irish, living in Ireland, what made you decide to write about the alt-right in the United States, and how does that relate, if at all, to any political comparisons or analogs in Ireland? Because I was born in the States and, and live here, and, you know, my accent is Irish and everything, I've always been kind of equally interested in events here and in the US. So I've always followed American politics and stuff like that very closely. How I ended up looking at well, what eventually became the alt-right was actually about seven years ago or so, I started a, a PhD and it was on online anti-feminist movements. So I would say when I started that, the main kind of energy on, you know, a new kind of, um, you know, reactionary kind of forum culture, if you like, was very much around feminism and gender. It was about anti-feminism. Now it's much more about race. And, and some of the, the, the people have kind of moved over from one to the other. But in terms of how, how it relates to Ireland, I mean, there's no really direct correlation because it is a very American phenomenon to the extent that there are Irish alt-right people. They're, they're very much kind of mimicking American, the, 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 the American kind of alt-right style. So um, there isn't really that much of an Irish connection. So we're the trendsetters around the world for alt-right aesthetics. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, actually, Ireland is kind of unusual in Europe in that it doesn't have a far right. It might be the only European country that doesn't have one. Right. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, the, the kind of mainstream is is quite conservative, very conservative on abortion. Uh, that yeah. That's kind of uh, an unusual um, issue, though. Uh, everything else is kind of, yeah, center right. Um, and, and there isn't a, really a far right movement of any kind. It's never been a problem here. And didn't something just happen with uh, abortion in Ireland? Or Yeah, I mean, it was kind of a, a complicated legal thing, but basically they're trying to repeal the Eighth Amendment, which is an amendment to the Co Irish Constitution, and we have to have a referendum to repeal uh, anything in the Constitution. And basically it, it, it it's a, a piece in the Constitution that gives equal right to life to the mother and the, you know, Fetus. fetus right that was great with Tavita Hamnapur yeah the woman of course who died because they would not ref remove a decaying fetus in her body that gave yeah. her sepsis and killed her yeah so, yeah yeah no um, it was a really shocking moment actually you see one of the reasons the issue continues and never really changes is that most you know Irish women do have abortions they just have them in the UK right so that kind of allows it's sort of a release valve. It means that there's never enough kind of pressure to change things. But the Savita case showed everyone that, you know, the, the, the group that it's that the law is kind of toughest on are actually people who are not from here. And, you know, for example, refugees or uh, asylum seekers uh, or immigrants who maybe don't want to be going to the UK and back again. Right. And say, and also for poor p women who can't afford to go to the UK, right? Oh yeah, 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 yeah absolutely, um, yeah. yeah. So great, it's doing its job as always. Um, <laughs> and I heard that women on waves just went uh, took a boat there to give people some abortions. <laughs> that sounds really funny, but uh, yeah, we, we were talking about this last week. How we want uh, Gabe wants to develop a, an app like a seamless app for abortions. We're very unapologetically pro-choice. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's some really good stuff going on actually around these issues. Lots of small campaigns um, 
and that uh, Women on Waves one is good. There's uh, Women on Web, I think it's called. And there's um, Need Abortion Ireland who actually illegally bring in, uh, you know, the the early like abortion tablets and oh, yeah. distribute them. Uh, you can, uh, find you know, find it on the website or whatever. They And they often get uh, seized, you know, on the way in. Not, you got to put them so in, in Tylenol uh, bottles. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so what was your dissertation on? I mean, I know I assume this theme, but what what was your you know every right every PhD has to have a hot take, but in intellectual <laughs> academic language, what was yours? So I was looking at online anti-feminist movements, and I mean this is so kind of uh, obvious to say now, but at the time it seemed kind of interesting that basically just that the the kind of stuff I was looking at looked so unlike. Uh, traditional anti-feminist movements. So I was looking at 4chan and, and like the red pill and stuff like that. But I was particularly interested in what was happening on 4chan because it seemed really interesting to me that they were expressing anti-feminist politics entirely through the kind of styles and language of stuff that I kind of recognize from the left, like mm. countercultural kind of transgression for its own sake and a sort of kind of punk aesthetic or whatever. You know, in other words, it wasn't like your standard Christian conservative style of anti-feminism. Right. So initially it looked, uh, it could look kind of cool or catch catch your eyes. And then it, it maybe had American Psycho or a Fight Club. <laughs> right. Fight Club remained like one of the most, uh, probably the most common film reference in that whole world for a long time. And, it, you know, it is exactly that kind of marriage of counterculture and anti-feminist politics that I found really interesting. And now that has kind of morphed over time into counterculture and racist politics, which is, is not totally unique, obviously. there You know, there are some kind of historical parallels, but it's interesting that it's become the dominant style of kind of reactionary politics, you know. Hot take-wise, um, the, the main thing that I spent all that time kind of thinking through was basically if politics like this fits so easily into countercultural styles and so on, or, or, you know, the two can go together so easily, then what does that tell us about those things, you know? So I started reading and thinking a lot about kind of the, the limits, really, of counterculture, of, of kind of avant-garde aesthetic ideals, of all that stuff, and just how kind of empty it is and how conducive it is to total nihilism. One of the interesting things in your book is you discuss the influence of Marquis de Sade and then also the Parisian avant-garde, the surrealist, the rebel rejection of feminized conformity of post-war America, and then to what film critics called 1990s male rampa rampage films like American mm. Psycho and Fight Club. What about the futurists? I mean, when I was reading your book, that was, that was one of the groups that popped into my head. Mm. I mean, honestly, I the, the list could have gone on right. for a very long time. And the futurists definitely probably deserved more of a mention, particularly because of the fact that they tried to use kind of avant-garde style to, you know, aestheticize fascism. But I, I guess because the reason I kind of focused on the others is because I was more interested in, in specifically the the transgressive stuff, the kind of carnivalesque and the idea that to transgress is is a kind of uh, an aesthetic ideal in and of itself. So, for example, uh, you constantly, if you look, just look at like all the different alt right people talking on Twitter or something like that, and you'll see they're they're really obsessed with being edgy, you know. Right. Um. And and this is their kind of measure of value, you know. And that kind of really made me think, you know, this is really a very stupid way to decide whether you know a movement has value or whatever, you know, it, it actually fits perfectly with a nihilistic view of the world. 
Well, uh, one of the most disturbing things for me to read was that I didn't know this, that Joy Division, whose singer Ian Curtis was on the political right, named themselves after the Frauenbalz, I don't know how to say it, but the German <laughs> camp brothels in World War II. Yeah. What? So love will tear us apart is really like leftism will tear us apart again, or what could it? What was it really about? Or maybe just well, love because they're so right wing they hate love. Ian Curtis was on the right, but he he voted for the Tories like under Thatcher. So and, edgy. Yeah, very edgy. That that was just a really I think a good example of of that kind of thing of like how much the right can be you know edgy and how co- completely stupid edginess is as an idea. They claimed kind of postmodern playfulness irony when they were questioned about the the name of the band. Right. That's something I feel like Americans are so bad about. In fact, on New Year's Eve, I was at a party. We were talking about actually George Ciccarello Mars. And Mm. this is a professor who uh, Drexel University is like trying to fire because he tweeted that all I want for Christmas is white genocide and was at a party. And I got into a little argument with someone. I was like, well, it was satire. And Mm. this guy at the party was like, well, that's your opinion. And I was like, no, it's not my opinion. It's satire. He's like, well... Donald Trump claims that he's being satirical. I was like, well, where? What do you mean? He's like, well, when he said that Obama started ISIS, he said that that was satire and people didn't get it. I was like, well, that's because it's not satire. That's hyperbole. For it to be satire, Mm -hmm. he would actually have to believe that uh, Obama had nothing to do with ISIS. And clearly that's not it. And he's like, that's what you think. And it was so annoying. Uh, (laughs) People are just really sloppy with analyzing humor and satire. Uh, yeah. Is it also just like the 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 uh, creator's intent is uh, not important now when um, any symbol can sort of be filled with or reinterpreted like as a weapon by whatever camp the movie, let's say Fight Club would be, if not neutral, its creator had its own intent. And then uh, people today, a decade after it was made, can use it as an analogy for their own ideology. So like if a satire is made and people don't get it, is it really satire? <laughs> it's like if a tree falls, right? And yeah. it doesn't make a noise, which we know actually does from sound wave science or whatever. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it's true. I often think about that. Like if, you know, Colbert, lots of people thought he was really conservative. Um, mm. But I do think there's a difference. We can isolate the intent from the effect, which is somewhat valuable. But like Showgirls, I don't know if I've said this before, I had a really brilliant film professor at Wesleyan who insisted that Showgirls was feminist. At first I was like, this guy's a perv and he just wants us all to watch Showgirls. Turned out he was gay and uh, there was no ulterior motive there. And he totally broke it down visually and I was like totally sold on it. But of course, no, not a single person who sees Showgirls, who's not a film PhD, <laughs> is gonna walk mm. away from that thinking it's a uh, feminist. But I feel like the Europeans, especially the Brits and the Irish are better at satire than Americans. Yeah, um, I don't know. I mean, I suppose at this point, it's so ubiquitous that it's kind of ruined in some way, you know, (laughs) Um, uh, like, I mean, Jonathan Swift was Irish, you know, Um, and uh, that, you know, you can say like, he was a great satirist. But I mean, now, you know, everyone is speaking in some kind of a tone most of the time. So it's it's much harder to distinguish, you know, and and the arguments that go on afterwards. I mean, I agree that you have to actually be able to say, no, this is satire and this is why. But uh, they're kind of futile arguments, aren't they? I mean, you know, you're you're kind of just um, in a in a kind of um, at that point, 
one person's word against the other situation. Right. Although one person is right and the other isn't. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> I think you can break it down, right? Kind of like yeah, a logic thing. Um, same mm. thing with a joke being offensive. Like some, so often people don't look at the at the who is the punchline of the joke, right? If you're ma- the classic case of the rape joke, right? If you're making fun of a rape victim, that's one thing, and if you're making fun of the rapist, that's totally other thing. Um, mm. But um, some questions for you. Um, you write that um, you you kind of look at the overlap, the similarities between the alt right and the alt left. Um, and, and kind of the edginess, right? And the transgressive nature of it and the rejection of a kind of mainstream, conventional, liberal um, aesthetic uh, mm. or politics. So where where does that overlap work and where does it not work? Like, what are the limitations um, of, of these comparisons? Because I feel like people love doing that horseshoe analogy. Like, mm. at the end of the day, you know, the, what's the... If you extreme? go too far exactly. to the left, yeah. you end up just, walking yeah. in a circle and yeah. end up on the right. Yeah, or... and that can be really annoying, especially when people saying it think they're, they're brilliant. And you're like, no, we got that when we were in eighth grade. Like, anyway, <laughs> your, your thing is obviously nuanced and complex, but can you talk to you of kind of a guide on where the similarities end? Yeah, I mean, um, as I understand it, like at the moment, um, you know, there is this question of who gets to decide what, the term alt-right means who, who, who it describes and so on, you know, so that every time anything's written about the alt-right, there's going to be an army of pedants online saying, no, your definition is wrong. And similarly, this alt-left thing, I mean, it's a kind of a stupid term, but as I understand it, based on who it has typically been describing, it kind of means people like Chapo and kind of Jacobin and mm-hmm. places this- you write and podcasts you appear on. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't compare those two at all. I mean, I, I think in many ways that version of the left is very much the answer to, you know, the alt-right, because I think that the, the kind of liberals in between are really not getting uh, the fact that so much of what they have done wrong has helped totally. to maybe not form, but certainly lend a lot of numbers to the alt-right. I mean, the alt-right without all the the various groups that ended up kind of uh, joining it or being in its broad milieu would be just a pretty standard far right you know there's no, nothing that unique about it the reason it got all the all this kind of cultural influence and and all the 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 numbers was really because so many people hated the the kind of culture i guess the kind of tumblerized so, younger yeah. forms of liberalism you know that emerged over the last maybe five years or so yeah that was something i found interesting reading uh, uh kill all normies was this the vacuum that was left in liberalism around how we're discussing you know issues and so uh they're in that vacuum that's where these alt-right guys you know fa- found a vo- they found like chinks in the armor Mm. And uh, and were able to sort of uh, cleave their own space where yeah. the ideology of liberalism wasn't satisfying people. Right. Or it was revolting people. Let's be real. Mm. Yeah. So but I was just wondering if you could speak a little bit about like uh, some examples from your book where that was the case. Um, where people were so repulsed by liberalism <laughs> yeah. that they sort of went right wing. Yeah. Or, or what you, I mean, <laughs> like, speaking uh, to what you just said yeah, about the... the lang- the, la- the like lack of language or lack of imagination uh, in the liberal discourse. You were just saying the ways in which it, you, you said it didn't form it, but it, and you didn't use the word emboldened, but that's what I think, like how this contributed hmm. to the flourishing of the alt-right. 
Yeah, absolutely. Because um, a lot of people who ended up kind of, you know, alt-right, I mean, even I, I, I know people like this uh, in my own life, kind of the people who started just being so irritated mm. by this, like, um, particularly online kind of culture of, um, you know, the, the kind of uh, public shaming that John Ronson wrote about, the ultra sensitivity, that whole kind of culture, the call out culture or whatever that, you know, younger people who were forming their political ideas at that point were very much reacting in a kind of backlash to that stuff. Now, that seems, you know, in some ways, that's all very immature, kind of, you know, a, a very immature way of, of forming your political views. But it is a kind of a younger, almost like a younger, more extreme version of a broader trend that was going on, which is that the liberal mainstream was also kind of oblivious and, you know, unwilling to deal with reality in lots of ways and and was just generally really off-putting. I mean, so, for example, you know, I, even the sort of wackiest kind of tumblerized uh, liberal politics actually isn't that different from, you know, the Hillary Clinton campaign, right. for example. You know, they share a lot of the same ideas and, and all of it is just uh, is just very off-putting. And, and I think, you know, people on the left, are, you know, obviously found it repulsive as well, right. which is why you have the thing that's now being stupidly called the alt-left. Um, I just think that that's really problematic. Um, that's my impersonation <laughs> of the Tumblr voice. And that's really like, we're going to have to unpack that. And that's really triggering. Um, but that's but also... Even the, even the word problematic, you know. Oh my God, it's, it's just so just annoying. A, such a, it's such a weaselly little word. I know, like, it means you know? nothing. I mean, it's basically saying I can't quite exactly. rationalize why I'm going to make you stop talking about this, but I'm just going to use problematic as totally. a placeholder. And I think what was so frustrating for people is that, um, you know, it became this became the norm and it became oppressive. This voice that constantly called stuff out. And it just like what I've been so frustrated with about both social justice warrior types, Tumblr types and Hil the Hillary campaign. And I do see a huge overlap. I mean, when you said oh, that, yeah. the first thing I thought was like, oh, I didn't even realize that they were that different. Like, I just mm -hmm. see one is establishment politics and the other one is the one that, like, totally hijacks identity politics and chops yeah. it up and, and, like, digests it and spits it out for the Hillary people to use. But mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I, that is kind of amazing to me is this obsession with what should happen or what should be done versus what is done. Um, and the calling out is so much more interested in embarrassing people than it is in kind of educating them, right? Like... When you when people talk about the white working class and it's just very there's a lot of male privilege, um, male straight white <laughs> privilege. Like, do you think for a second if you're I mean, and they over they, they generalize stuff. They have no nuance when it comes to class. Right. But even mm -hmm. like, let's say, for argument's sake, we, we pick up their 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 stupid insight of like a coal miner who's like, you know, he's not aware of his white privilege. He just cares about his own health care. And Bernie's really being bigoted <laughs> by um, um, empowering him. Like, do you honestly think said coal miner is going to be like, you're right, I should stop being racist. I should check my own white privilege. Uh, that's not how it works. Yeah. I heard you on... Um, Dead pod, what is dead? Dead pundit dead society. society. Yeah, society. Yeah. And you were talking about the Nazis. There was a sense of feeling guilt. It's just a general kind of consensus among among historians that a very significant factor in the emergence of Nazism was the feeling of being forced to feel guilt. You know, after World War One. And uh, and so the humiliation of being forced to feel guilt is actually a very powerful thing. 
and I, I genuinely do feel that it is uh it is a, a strong I mean I don't want to psychologize it too much because you know there are all kinds of other material factors and different things but on an individual basis I do think that there is a very strong desire to not feel guilt mm, that is yes, behind yes. a lot of this Germany uh, in the lead up to the rise of the Nazi movement you know I think they do feel humiliated you know and there's no point in saying well you know they they can't feel humiliated because they're this really dominant group but that's that's neither here nor there I mean they do feel it so whether it's imagined or not uh, I think that is the character of what I see kind of just intuitively that's what it feels like to me yeah, I, I think I was talking about Richard Evans' uh, book, the, Th- the Coming right. of the Third Reich, right. and um, you know he talks about uh, the the two really, you know, and and his book is really a kind of survey almost of of the massive like uh, scholarship that's been done on that period, and the two big standout things are economic uh, disasters and um, shame, uh, like being forced to publicly. Uh, bow your head and express your shame and all that kind of stuff and the the sense of humili- national humiliation right. performative kind of guilt yeah but you know even I, I i saw recently a video of uh, richard spencer speaking at uh, auburn university and there was obviously a lot of fans of his in the audience who had come to see him and they were like you know getting standing up and cheering at, at certain points and it was interesting the bits that they were cheering at the most were all the ones that to me kind of said um you don't have to feel ashamed mm. like you you, ha- you have this really proud heritage and it goes back to rome and you know all this kind of stuff and you know um you know, it's not that difficult to see how, you know, somebody who's, if you grow up in an online world and you're politicized in an online world and you're in that kind of um, world where people think that if if we all feel, if enough people feel enough shame, everything will get better. Uh, and then you have this person telling you, no, you have this wonderful, proud heritage. And, uh, you know, I can see how a sort of lost uh teenager that that would have some appeal to them you know and also Richard Spencer is is very clever uh, at at communicating um, kind of collectivism Um, Mm. you know so in the same talk he was saying he was making the kind of anti end of history argument he was saying um, that uh, you know we're there's something more out there than just um, everyone being like free-floating individuals with no uh, you know, w- w- with um, with just their individual identity and so on, and that we have some kind of collective identity, um, and that obviously had a huge appeal. I mean, you can kind of you could kind of feel it in the room, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's the thing that like people are just so obsessed with what should happen. So going back to that, it's like, how dare you feel? Um, how dare you feel uncomfortable with your guilt? That's something that is on you. And, uh, you know, you need to process it, whatever, like, like social justice warrior language they would use. Like, you have to unpack, unpack it. it. Yeah, you have to unpack it. And like, that's on you. Like, you really have to interrogate it. And like, you're doing a lot too much <laughs> this, like pointing outwards and all of this pointing at the person. But like, I always think about the Holocaust because people keep comparing Trump to, to Hitler and Trump supporters to Nazis. And it's mm. like, imagine if we were back there and it's like, it's not on me to convince you, potential Nazi that um, <laughs> Jews aren't bad. Like, 
No, you wouldn't say that. Or if you did say that, you'd probably be regretting it a couple weeks mm-hmm. later, whenever Chris, yeah. assuming this is, let's say, a couple weeks before Kristallnacht or whatever. Um, and the same thing with the economic stuff. Like, I cannot believe we're having this discussion. I thought everyone knew that economic um, uh, uncertainty or uh, crises made people that much more susceptible to uh, appeals to xenophobia and stuff. Mm. And you see these neolibs pointing in their think pieces, this whole genre of young white men exhorting other white people not to move to the left. Um, You see them actually pointing to this as evidence. And they're like, well, we know it's not economic anxiety. It's just good old fashioned racism and xenophobia. And we know that because we do polling and surveys Mm. after Brexit or after people vote for for Trump. And when they fill out what they're most upset about, they say immigration and foreigners. They don't say neoliberal reform or trade. (laughs) And it's like, Mm. that's how it works. Do you think like the Nazis were like when they if they had been polled or the Nazi sympathizers, they wouldn't have been like, well, it's really because we're we're humiliated, but we're going to be uh, we're being manipulated into blaming the Jews. Isn't that the whole point that you that there's a um, a shift I mean, isn't that what literally scapegoating is? Like you put a problem, mm. the blame on someone else who doesn't cause it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, everyone goes into a state of panic. And then the weak links are the first people who are going to be, um, you're going to have the finger pointed at them, you know. And um, actually, I mean, that that Richard Evans book is kind of amazing to read. I'd really recommend anyone yeah. to, to read it. Or even if you have read it, go back and read it again. Because, you know, even though the people talking about, you know, people saying Trump Trump is a Nazi, you know, are, are being ridiculous, obviously. But but it is interesting to see the, the kind of eerie parallels um, that are there, you know, that he's describing. And in fact, I remember thinking the, the Bauhaus kids were sort of like the social justice warriors, you know. He, he described how like all the locals hated them and, um, you know, they were kind of um, uh, given as an example of um, these kind of weird, uh, <laughs> weird, weird young people right. that the, the reactionaries kind of couldn't get their heads around no i think it's used i mean i i wasn't i think that sometimes it's absurd the comparisons i think that sometimes the comparisons are 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 good but Mm. but the point is like the people who are so quick to make those comparisons they never look at where they they're like very selective in it right so they compare trump to hitler but then they won't compare any of the stuff like weimar republic let's look at the weimar republic and how it compares to now right so like Mm. i don't think most of these people would look at the holocaust and say it was just inherent anti-semitism nothing about the economic collapse nothing about the treaty of versailles had anything to do with it maybe they would and they're more idiotic than i even think but (laughs) i mean i suppose the problem is when they say when their reason for saying trump is hitler is to say we don't have to we now don't have to think about anything or concede anything, or be self-critical about anything. You know, it's their right. way of kind of shutting that possibility down. That's right. like when it's a problem, I think. Right. Yeah. Again, so it'd be like it's not on me to convince the Nazis or whatever. Mm. Um, and I always think, like as a Jew, uh, I mean, as a I'm a Bernie Jew, secular Jew. Uh, mm. I used to call myself a Woody Allen Jew, but luckily there's a better option to compare myself to. <laughs> but I always think like. I would, ne- and again, I know I'm pl- I'm being presentist and I'm making a sloppy analogy, but I can't ever imagine like if I were Jew, I wouldn't want Aryans or like Germans to tell people on the fence about Nazism like check your Aryan privilege. I'd want them to reason <laughs> with these people. Like there's such shame and it's such a taboo about trying to convince people. How do people think any of this stuff works? Like 
You think mm. that literally like turning your back on people and telling them that they need to check their privilege is how you persuade people? Sorry. Yeah, I'm going I, off yeah I know. No, it's so true. I mean, it, it's been such a disaster, you know. Yeah. Um, I mean, tactically, exactly. uh, it, it's been such a disaster. Um, and, you, you know, the, that mixture of simply the unwillingness to talk about anything difficult and saying, I'm so uh, moral and pure that I'm not going to engage with this in any way. I'm right. not going to be on a panel with so-and-so or I'm, I, whatever it is. And I just think that's not morally pure. That's actually just total vanity at the expense mm. of everyone else. You know? Yeah, it's selfish and it's a cop-out. Mm. Um, wh- what about um, the whole debate over free speech and violence? That Those are mm-hmm. two big things that are happening. Um what, do you have any insights? I'm sure you do into either of those. And I feel like the conversations as always free speech is being misinterpreted or misrepresented as uh, the right for anyone to say anything as opposed to the right to be protected from the government stopping you from saying something. Hmm. Yeah, it's very, very complicated. Um, up until pretty recently, I would have just been a total free speech absolutist, really. Um, An and edgelord. I uh, yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I would have dismissed... Um, you know, the, the, the thing of just like, so for example, shutting Milo down, uh, saying that Milo's a fascist and trying to get him shut down. But now we have the problem of like, actually, the thing that people exaggerated in saying has now happened, <laughs> which is that there really are really genuinely far right people and they are uh, organizing themselves to get into violent confrontations. Mm. And this has been the case in Europe for some time, but it, it's unusual in America. And like, so that's actually happening now. So at that point, you kind of have to change your position because, you know, uh, it, it's not speech. They're actually getting violent. Now, the problem is they're getting violent. Well, they're seizing an opportunity, which they saw in the earlier, uh, you know, for example, the Berkeley rights against Milo or, or earlier ones. But and let's not forget also a couple of years before that, uh, there were, you know, it, it was like uh, Jermaine Greer and people like that that were being sort of hounded out of universities. Um, so so all of this has happened like that is the kind of the broad trajectory of it. And because it was so absurd at the beginning, um, it's actually it's actually almost been self-fulfilling. It, it has actually left an opening there for real fascists to actually get violent because now they look like, oh, we're, we're defending free speech. Right. And what do you think the role of, I mean, of, of the of violence is on the left and what, what should be done? I don't, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the vanity you were referring to, which is like, I, I refuse to be on a panel with them. I find some of my lefty cohorts sometimes being like, how dare you judge our violence when there are people on the right being violent or the police state mm. is violent. I'm like, I know, we all know this. Like, I agree with you. Black Lives Matter is a response to that. You don't have to convince me that the police force kills people who are innocent. But just on a tactical level, mm. what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, ta- tactics-wise, I don't think it's going anywhere good. I mean, I don't see... I, I mean, what I will say is the tactics thing is very difficult now. It, it, like, if you you know asked me this a year ago, I would have given you a very simple answer. Now it's complicated by the fact that there really are violent fascists. They're in among much more moderate kind of mm. maybe just center-right Trump fans or Milo fans or whatever. Um, but the thing is, I mean, in a way, regardless of your position on uh, the, the, on the tactics, when it comes to violence and pacifism, the thing that's actually missing, that will be the deciding factor, I think, 
is the absence of really powerful, articulate speakers who are, I mean, actually Bernie is one of them. Like, like Bernie is, 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 should be our role model. Mm -hmm. I mean, after, you know, Bernie was always trying to get like Trump to debate him. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, if you say publicly, I want you to debate me, what you're saying is I'm confident in my ideas. If you debate, if, if you back out of this, you'll look like you have no confidence in your ideas. And that is why, you know, similarly, like as soon as the um, American elections were over, Hillary Clinton went off into the mountains or the forest right. or whatever it was. Serengeti. And and Bernie was out there like every day. He was absolutely amazing. He, he was such a great speaker and he, he made his case so well. And, you know, um, but obviously he's very focused on kind of very bread and butter kind of issues. Um, and he, he doesn't really get into a lot of these kind of issues that we're talking about. But certainly we need um, people with that level of um, uh, kind of being knowledgeable, being articulate and being kind of aggressive and saying, you know, we we want you to have these arguments with us in public. Right. And also, I think there's an interesting like Venn diagram of people who are totally not reachable. Right. People who like burn crosses on someone's lawn or people like Richard Spencer who are much more kind of um, f have a lot more finesse and are legal about it. And then there mm. are people who say things that are problematic and people who aren't woke. And I don't think we can afford to morally or tactically just turn our backs on these people. Um, mm. And I think we see Sanders doing that. And then he gets vilified for even trying to talk to people who we need. Just I mean, we just need them if we if we want to vote for the non-Trump. Forget the like the more class conscious analysis where we actually believe in bringing people in and and making them aware aware of how they're being screwed by, you know, someone like Trump. Mm. It just shocks me. Um, speaking of Richard Spencer, have you ever seen the movie Waiting for Guffman? No. It's a great movie. And uh, or have you seen A Mighty Wind by any chance or Best in Show? No. Okay. Well, I'm gonna. You're gonna. Your life is gonna change. And whenever <laughs> okay. you watch these, but Richard Spencer's voice quality reminds me so much of this actor who's in those movies. Um, I have to look it up. I don't remember his name, but his tone of voice sounds so much like his. Hi everyone, this is Richard Spencer, and uh, I'm going to talk about a, a really terrible thing that just happened today, and that is the assault on me in, in downtown D.C. There had been abuse in my family, uh, but it was mostly musical in nature. But then what he says, the content, reminds me so much of Corky Sinclair in Waiting for Guffman. And uh, Angela, Corky Sinclair is a character played by Christopher Guest. You've, you've seen uh, Spinal Tap, maybe? Yeah, okay. yeah. So Christopher Guest is the, is the guy who says 11 in Spinal Tap. Yeah. This is a top to uh, you know, what we use on stage, but it's very, very special because the numbers all go to 11. If we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Uh, put it up to 11. 11, exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. Yeah, yeah. And he plays a, um, a theater, a community theater a director who tried to go to Broadway and now accepted a job at the Blaine Community Players. And he talks all about like acting and, and being on Broadway. And when Richard Spencer recounted being punched in the face and he talks about like being doing the filming and the cameras following him around. It sounds so much like Christopher Guest in that, <laughs> in that movie. In fact, I like really, I really want to do a mashup of, uh, oh, of them. Yeah. Yeah. I think that'd you should, be great. you should definitely use it in this. Yeah. Right. Oh, good. I'm happy. Yeah. We're in downtown DC near a restaurant that I like to go to. I was shopping for my wife, Bonnie. 
I buy most of her clothes. We're meeting up with some people, and we just happened upon this demonstration. And it just was an accident. Mrs. Pearl was in the same shop. And then someone came out of nowhere and punched me, and he didn't really land one. Not a big deal, but it was pretty remarkable. I mean, a guy came out and punched me. And then basically being slammed down for 10 or so years, you know, off, 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 off Broadway. After that, I, I moved over to the side, and a guy came and spat on me. So this was three physical assaults. And then enough is enough, okay? I get the joke. Say what you will about challenging someone to a fight over, you know, an ideological issue. In France, when men would slap each other with their gloves. There's at least something manly about it, and there's something civilized about it, in the sense that you go up to his face and say, let's get in a fight. Say, you know, D'Artagnan, you know, how dare you talk to me like that, you? And smack him. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, have you noticed this phenomenon that is like alt-woke or woke-right? where people like defend Milo uh, as for being a gay, a gay immigrant Jewish guy or some guy on like equal pay day actually said something like um interesting that on equal pay day the left is suddenly very firm on the gender binary and who exactly is a woman uh like this really weird thing where people on the right use the oh yes yeah, yeah. it's kind of hilarious yeah, and, and they were also saying, like, oh, you should all be in favor of Le Pen now because you're such <sighs> feminists. Oh, my God, right. That is just, right, exactly. <laughs> right, because they care so, and they're such Hillary fans. Um, <laughs> right, or Margaret Thatcher or Clarence Thomas, if you care about civil yeah. rights. Um, but it's so funny. Someone was, like, yelling at Alex Jones for, uh, like, no, at Anna Kasparian, who's from the Young Turks. I don't, you, I don't know if you remember when Alex Jones crashed the stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and she did call him a fat F-U-C-K, I think, which is kind of hilarious. And some guy made a video. He's like, look at Anna Kasparian, fat shaming Alex Jones. Mm. And same thing with the woman, um, Alicia Machado, who, who Donald Trump called Miss Piggy. Uh, she once, you know, she was like a beauty pageant winner. And some people dug up some things she was in on, like, you know, Spanish language television where she wore a fat suit. And they're like, look at this woman fat shaming people. It's like people who would definitely have called her fat. I mean, Trump had called yeah, her Miss yeah, Piggy. Yeah. Now all of a sudden they're super woke. Yeah, they're, they're, they're trying to just, like, look at me pointing out the hypocrisy, yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. lifting the veil on the hypocrisy of social justice warriors. And, you know, I, I just think uh, this is, like, the most... This is like two bald men fighting over a comb or, you know, it's mm. the most unedifying kind of political fight you could ever have. I'm going to have to ask you, we can't um, condone that bald, bald follicular phobic <laughs> uh, behavior on the show. There's actually a very funny Curb Your Enthusiasm where Larry David um, is vandalized his house and they write bald A-S-S-H-O-L-E uh, yeah, yeah. and he reports it as a hate crime. <laughs> Bald asshole? That's a hate crime. We're a sect. We're a group. You can't call us bald assholes. I wonder what if we were gay? There would be gay asshole? That's a hate crime. But, but it says bald asshole. Yeah. It doesn't say really bald. Okay, but we consider ourselves a, a, a group of people. Sir, I'm bald. I'm not offended. Well, with all, with all due respect, Officer Burt, you are not bald, okay? You have chosen to shave your hair. That's a look that you're cultivating to be fashionable, and we don't really consider you part of the bald community, with all due respect. <laughs> Oh yeah, there's also one where he's whistling Wagner. Yes, that's a great one. Yeah, yeah, I love, I love that one. <laughs> In fact, I made a, a mashup of the. I don't know if you remember the Bernie Sanders the debate where um, Anderson Cooper asked Bernie Sanders if he's Jewish, 
and has like a really stupid definition of Jewishness, basically being religious. And mm. uh, Bernie Sanders pushes back and says, you know, his family was killed in the Holocaust. So I did a mashup of that and the Wagner thing where oh, he's great. like, you want to see my penis? When he's asking if he's Jewish. Um, <laughs> But and, and we have a couple more minutes. Anything else you want to uh, address? And we can cut out any awkwardness like our setting you up so we can make it okay. sound like it's totally natural. Um, um, let me see. Um, oh, well, there is one thing just as a general description of the book. Um, right now, everyone wants to know about the alt right. Well, that's been the case for six months or so now. Um and, uh, you know, nobody knows what to do about them and it's all kind of baffling and it's a, a thing that's constantly changing. So, you know, people are looking for kind of experts or whatever. But I should say that the book is really about the online culture wars. I mean, mm. the old writer in there, uh, I, I do kind of a, you know, a primer kind of description at the beginning. They're kind of looming over it, and then and then they sort of appear again at the end. But it's definitely not a book about the alt right. Like it's not a, it's not a, a an in depth description of their origins and and stuff like that. Alt right in the strict sense. Now, um, it's very much more like a broad kind of map of the online culture wars over the last eight years or so, uh, both sides. Yeah. Um, so it's very much about the Tumblr kind of identity politics as well uh, and about Mark Fisher and about, uh, you know, all the sort of the, the battles that went on online and kind of split people in different ways. Um, and, and so it's really about that. And then it's trying to kind of uh, I, I'm very interested in um, in uh, how political movements use style. So mm -hmm. um, so kind of like the style can stay the same, but the actual politics can change. So, for example, in the case of 4chan, the politics of 4chan, like, let's say, eight years ago was was quite different. Like it was, you know, it became very connected to the alt-right. But in the kind of anonymous uh, phase or whatever, it, it was very different. But I think that's kind of interesting because, uh, you know, the, the, it, there's something meaningful in the fact that the style remained the same, you know. Right. Um, because the thing is, as I was saying, you know, these, these kind of ideas, I think very tired ideas at this point uh the the kind of the, the transgression and carnivalesque and all that stuff um that that just about anything can kind of fill that void um and that i think we should be much more more critical of it um i i spoke to a, a journalist from vice recently called roisin kybert and she read uh proofs of the book and she she said that the main thing she took from it was that edginess has to die mm, right. <laughs> which i thought was kind of a, a good a, a good example of like the fact that it, it isn't um a description of the development of the alt right it it's really primarily about the online culture wars and in many ways i'm sort of only hanging the stuff i really want to talk about on uh the online culture wars which is all that stuff about about kind of our values essentially and and 4chan is this really right is an alt right uh website forum right just so people so our listeners yeah know. well well i mean 4chan was the point of origin of anonymous the hacker sort of um uh it's hard to know what to call them group uh, collective uh, sort of um i suppose it's a, a brand to I, i'm sure they'd hate that uh, right. term but um uh, and it was also you know uh it's really the the site of origin for like most of contemporary meme culture i mean it was like very a very creative very productive kind of forum it was you know and the reason for that um gabriella coleman kind of cover, covers it a lot um 
in her sort of early stuff um, that it's it's because it was anonymous and um, kind of freewheeling and image based. Um, And so it produced, yeah, all the kind of early, early uh, meme aesthetics that we still are replicating now. So when you when we talk about this as transgressive or edgy uh, culture and like 4chan before it became incredibly right leaning, uh, there was something Mm -hmm. liberating about it, though. Uh, were there offshoots of it that uh, like fed into? Uh, is there anything useful from it? Uh, See, or, I, I, yeah. I would say no. Um, at the time, uh, it's it's weird to think of this now, but when I was doing my PhD, this I think pretty much all of the academic stuff that was available, scholarly stuff that had been written about 4chan, was very flattering uh, of it. You know, it, it was very. And it's because it had this kind of what you know something that you immediately intuitively recognize as a countercultural kind of style. Sure. So, so uh, the response to it was really, really positive. I remember there was an essay in like Radical Philosophy, uh, and also, um, you know, all, basically all the scholarly work that had been done totally positive. And you know, they would call it a counter hegemonic space, and you know, a transgressive space, and all this kind of stuff. And I thought, well, yeah, that's true. But what does that even mean? I mean, why is that good? Like, Mm -hmm. if it's just transgressive, I mean, what what is the value in that? And this is where I kind of ended up becoming almost like a moralist or something, um, looking at all this stuff, because I thought, you know, um, having no, uh, being amoral and being nihilistic and just being in favor of transgression and edginess for its own sake without reference to any specific values is worthless. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, and the thing is, maybe there was a time when we lived in like extremely traditionalist societies where that had some kind of value, that kind of punk style or whatever had, had value. But at this point, I mean, you know, it's been totally co opted by Silicon Valley. Right. It's kind it's of. Just, it's trite by now. Uh, it's so... trite. It's trite, exactly. There, there is nothing really that's, you know, there. I don't think there's any value in it anymore. There's nothing. It's not that there's nothing to transgress, but I mean, it just as a mode, I don't think it right. really ha- has much value anymore, you know? As just form and not content. Mm, exactly, yeah. And is this is this correct? I'm trying. Like, would you say it seems like from your book that there is a comparison between like the alt right and and people for shorthand, let's say Chapo or Jacobin, right? But you're you seem to be saying that one of the people who can kind of legitimately counter the alt right are places like Jacobin or podcasts like Chapo. That's the answer to it, as opposed to kind of the analog. And that really the parallel is more the liberal world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm certainly not comparing them. I, I, I'm saying, uh, I, if anything, you know, uh, it's almost more like um, the kind of uh, Tumblr uh, form so, of identity right, politics right. or whatever is, is you know, has similarities with the alt-right. Um, you know, I, I, I would make much more of a comparison there because of the fact that they're ultra anti-materialists they're totally identitarian, um, you know, and and that, you know, I I think that the most interesting thing to come along is a much more uh, um, materialist kind of just uh, socialist politics, basically, you know, Um, not not to come along, because of course, it was was always there. But, but definitely, I suppose the that kind of um, what is being called alt left, uh, I don't want to kind of help that term into existence. But, uh, you know, that is, 
um, reviving, um, I guess, um, a kind of an unapologetic socialism that is not embarrassed about distinguishing itself. Um, so I think that's the, the most positive uh, outcome of all of this, all of the online culture wars of the last couple of years. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think of the, the comparisons between like, yeah, the, those are such sloppy comparisons or like James Walcott piece on the alt left uh, where he mm. talks about bros. Meanwhile, this is a guy who called Chelsea Manning uh, response to Obama. He was like, apart from being ungrateful, it's a it's a standard boilerplate response from any Bernie bro. Like That's mm. not that's probably not the wokest thing to say when you're talking about Chelsea Manning. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and the thing is, like, I mean, they do always uh, not mention when they're talking about, uh, you know, insert whatever the thing you're talking about, bro. Uh, that you know, they never mention the fact that there's always women there. Oh right, of um, course. You know, there's always non-white people there who, uh, who who just gotta get shoved off to the side in these kind of conversations. Right, it's a great way to invisibilize, do all the erasure that they like to lecture other people about. Yeah, I mean, I can't remember which article it was, but one of the ones about the alt left uh, exclusively mentioned it was like Mark Ames, Michael Tracy, Chapo. You know, um, uh, I'm surprised they didn't say like pre Amber Chapo or something. Right, right. No, <laughs> just, they just, to, just to make her. sure there was absolutely no women in there. Ah, uh, right, right. No, but it's it's much more on brand for them to just not even say it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Um, yeah. And are you coming to the states anytime soon? By the way. Yeah, I'm going to be in New York in June. I'm going to be speaking at a panel uh, at the Left Forum. Oh, great. Yeah, and then I'm speaking at the uh, Rosa Luxemburg organization there nice. as well. Awesome. Yeah, we should have you at a live show. Oh, yeah. Get you, yeah. I, yeah. Uh, Shuja Hader is going to be speaking with me as well on the panel. Oh, great. I know, yeah. I know him. Uh, in fact, we had a little fight on Twitter with some guy who was saying how, you know, like no white pe- uh what was it? Something ridiculous, literally like how you can't look at, we don't have time to look to the past because we need to fight Trump. Like a parody of stupidity. <laughs> He's like, can we just have some ahistorical yeah. Uh, yeah. struggle right now that's totally reactionary oh. and based on my emotions? And then he did that awful thing where he's like, the only people I hear saying that are people who are like, we need to be nice to white people. And Suja was like, my man, hey, my man, or something. It was very funny because he used my man, which makes me laugh. And he was like, I'm, I voted for, for Sanders and I'm not white or something. And then this guy, instead of apologizing, this is like, if you're going to be social justice warrior-ish and, like, white guilt invoking, then at least do the work. That's another thing, right, Gabe? Do the work. You have to do the work. you got to do the work, right? <laughs> so then doing the work means you apologize. You don't push back on someone uh, when they call yeah. you out for, for being racist. Um, he wrote a an essay uh, called Safety Pins and Swastikas. Yes. And it was, yeah, that was great. That, that That's one of my favorite things written about all this, I yeah. think. we got to have him on. Well, Angela, thank you so much. And people can find you online at A-N-G-N-A-G-L-E. And you can find her writing at ba- The Baffler and Jacobin. Um, and make sure you look out for her book, Kill All Normies. And yeah, we'd love to have you on again. All right. Thanks. Cool. Thanks. Bye. 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 Great show. Great interview. Love the Irish accent. And besides that, it was a great interview. Thank you so much for listening to The Katie Halper Show. Make sure you join our Patreon at patreon.com slash The Katie Halper Show. We'll be playing our extended interview with Angela Nagel, and you'll be able to hear more of her talking in her Irish accents, which I can't do very well. And, of course, tons of bonus always there. See you guys next week. Bye.